All right, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Chip Bishop. I'm the director of student programs here at the Cato Institute. I want to welcome you. Uh, it's a full house, and that's great to see. Um, I want to extend a special welcome to the hundreds or even thousands uh, who are tuning in online to watch this event. Uh, if you want to text your friend and you say this is really good, you can shoot them the, uh, the web address. It's just cato.org slash live. Um, go ahead and do that. Uh, I checked online before coming down here, and we have virtual attendees. Uh, from places ranging from Australia to Yemen, Argentina to Japan to the UK, and even from Royal Oak, Michigan. Uh, so thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, the last time I checked, we also had 400 plus people registered to come here in person. Uh, and from like all the crowds I saw in the halls, in here, up and downstairs, uh, I think we're pretty close to approaching that number. So it's great to have such a big crowd here. Um, and uh, it's nice that so many of you guys are interested in the topic of today's debate. I look forward to hearing from a lot of you during the Q&A portion of today's event, uh, and maybe even more at the uh, reception to follow, which is going to be upstairs. Uh, I should also note that if you want to field a question online, uh, you can log uh, onto the discussion at cato.org slash live. Uh, there's a, a little debate portal on there. Uh, and you can also tweet with the hashtag LVCDebate, which is also on the screen. I want to thank our panelists today, uh, fielded from squads at both uh, uh, Cato and Heritage from our intern programs. Uh, and they're here to represent the libertarian and conservative sides, uh, respectively. Um, and a special thank you goes out to the dedicated research partner from each team. Uh, you see two of them up here, uh, but there's one person in the audience from each side who uh, was really fundamental in helping them research each of the questions. Uh, so they really got like the hard task of doing all the work with none of the glory. Uh, so I wanted to at least give them a quick shout out. Um, you can find their bios uh, along with the bios of uh, the panelists uh, on the flyer that you guys got when you walked in here today. Uh, this is a good time also to make clear that uh, the panelists today do not represent the organizations uh, where they're currently interning. Uh, as you'll note, uh, their placards say libertarian and conservative, uh, not Cato and heritage. Uh, that's on purpose. Uh, this debate is about ideas, and it's represented by intelligent people who have their own opinions, uh, their own views, and policy perspectives, and they are not to be construed uh, in any uh, manner as speaking on behalf of either Cato or heritage. Um, so for anyone covering this event for media outlets, articles, or personal blogs, uh, you've been warned. Uh, I ask you to respect the distinction we've made about the panelists and cite them as libertarian or conservative uh, accordingly. Um, Cato uh, is a, a research and educational organization. Uh, I'm sure many of you have been here in the past. Uh, we've got former interns in the audience, and we even have former participants in uh, this debate from years past, so that's great. But many of you might be here for the first time, uh, and I welcome you, and welcome you to come back many hundreds of times after this. Uh, Cato is a, a research and educational organization uh, driven to uh, develop great policy ideas and communicate them to the educated public, which is you guys. Um, so whatever the topic, student loan rates going up, uh, if development hurts the poor uh, more than it helps them, uh, if uh, a particular cheese is illegal to import, if libertarianism or conservatism is a better political philosophy, uh, if anyone's asked a question about how government is involved in the individual lives of citizens, uh, there's probably someone in Cato's almost 40 years of research who's covered that. So I invite you to check out our, our long archives on Cato.org and also a recent project, libertarianism.org, to dig into the philosophy that we're going to be discussing tonight. Um, this is the third year that we've hosted this event. 
which is pretty awesome. Uh, it's grown a lot, not only in size, uh, but I'd posit also in quality. Uh, and for that, I must thank my colleagues, uh, Angelie Schrader and Heather uh, Fitzmeyer uh, from the Heritage Foundation. Heather's actually tuning in uh, live right now, so I'll say hi. Um, They've spent many long hours collaborating with me and tweaking uh, both the resolutions and the format to make sure that every year this event is bigger and better than the years past, and I owe them a lot of thanks for that. Um, one of the main, my main roles here at Cato uh, is to bridge the gap between uh, the policy world and students and interns, um, which is, you know, like you guys, uh, and it's not always a simple task. Um, we offer internships, social media content, week-long and weekend uh, seminars, and briefings on campus and here at Cato to stimulate tomorrow's leaders to think about issues that are important today. Uh, that's why events like this are so heartening, uh, because they demonstrate uh, that libertarianism and public policy in general uh, isn't just the mindset held by old hippies who want to keep the government away from their money. Uh, but it also shows that young people are interested uh, in robust philosophy and how to apply it to political, uh, academic, and personal areas of life. Um, so I hope that this event will serve to uh, further engage you in these world of ideas and that you'll seek further opportunities to learn more. Uh, speaking of integrating academic and uh, personal lives, our friends at the Atlas Economic Research Foundation, uh, it's a think tank that plants think tanks around the world. Uh, they're just two blocks from here. Um, they invite you to celebrate Milton Friedman's birthday with them for a night of uh, Friedman trivia on Wednesday, July 31st, two weeks from today at 6 p.m. Uh, there we'll have flyers out that you can grab outside of uh, the auditorium. Uh, teams of two to four people can sign up, whether you're from an organization, respectively, or you just want to gather a bunch of friends and come compete. Uh, they're giving away $25 Amazon gift cards to every member of the winning team. Uh, and to match the theme, they'll be serving pizza, Chicago style, uh, <laughs> beer, and birthday cake. Uh, and it's all for free, so grab your friends. Uh, and if you grab a flyer and you want to shoot them any questions, their information's on that. You'll also find outside information on the Cato internship. Uh, there's some brochures out there. Uh, and now, speaking of interns, uh, we will switch uh, gears and start talking about the reason you guys are all here in the first place, which is the big debate. Is libertarianism or conservatism the better political philosophy? Our libertarianism and conservatism are two trains of thought that have both much in common and much in contrast. Uh, this forum is to provide an opportunity to lay out the similarities and clearly define the differences between the two paradigms. Uh, to help us navigate that process, we've got asked uh, Nikki Neely to be the moderator for today's event. Uh, not only does Nikki have experience at both libertarian and conservative organizations, uh, but she's worked on the policy and the communication side of many uh, policy issues. So she's well positioned to uh, offer perspective and to guide this discussion. Nikki's currently a vice president at Denzen Hall Research, a high stakes communications firm. She previously served as executive director and senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum and was both manager and external relations and media manager here at the Cato Institute. In addition, she's worked as director of research analyst for the uh, analysis for the Winston Group, a public opinion and message design firm. And she's authored several papers for the Illinois Policy Institute and America's for Prosperity uh, in the Illinois chapter. Uh, she started in DC as a Koch Summer Fellow with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. She's been around a lot of organizations, which is awesome. Uh, and she's been published widely uh, and currently appears in a weekly segment on Fox and Friends called Regulation Nation, highlighting absurd state and federal regulations. It's funny, it's cool, but it's really early in the morning on Monday, but you should get up and watch it. Um, she's also been a guest on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, CNBC, 
PBS, as well as lots of national radio programs. She holds a bachelor's degree in political science from the University of Illinois uh, and a master's of public policy from Pepperdine University. Originally from Chicago, like me, uh, she now lives in Arlington with her husband Clark, a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice and part of the original Heller versus DC team, uh, which was the Second Amendment case decided before the Supreme Court uh, in 2008. Uh, in addition to all this, uh, Nikki happens to be a good friend of mine, and I'm thankful for her agreeing to come and officiate this intellectual rodeo. Uh, so please join me in welcoming Nikki Neelier, tonight's moderator. Thanks for coming. Um, thank you to Chip and Anjali for organizing this. Um, it's amazing to have so many of you here, um, to have so many people watching online. Um, as I said, 400 people here, probably 1,000 or so people watching online. So it's really, it's truly an honor to be in front of a bigger view viewing audience than MSNBC. Um, <laughs> this is, um, it's, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a very personal debate for me. My first right of center experience was in grad school. Um, I was totally a bleeding heart liberal in undergrad. Um, but I went to an event at the Reagan Ranch in California uh, through the Young America's Foundation. I've been to tons of Philadelphia Society meetings, Mount Pelerin meetings. Um, as Chip said, I worked here. I've been at IWF. Um, I've worked with some of the state groups. Um, my husband works at IJ. All of my friends work at think tanks. Like, these are, you are my people. Um, and so really, I am kind of having an identity crisis, and I'm depending on our panelists to really help me kind of navigate my way through which is the right way. Um, and I have to be completely honest, I'm a little bit scarred still from being a Coke Summer Fellow because I was deemed a statist when I said I was not 100% comfortable selling heroin and vending machines to kindergartners. <laughs> so um, there's that, so I, I do ask the panelists to go to be gentle. Um, so this is there. I obviously have huge shoes to fill. Last year, this was moderated by Tim Carney, who's a Washington Examiner columnist, an MSNBC contributor. Before that, it was Gene Healy, who's a VP here. So I started doing research over the Fourth of July. It was a, a pretty boring vacation. Um, I read Hayek's Why I Am Not a Conservative, and started getting thinking. Then I started to read Russell Kirk's um, The Conservative Mind. I promptly fell asleep for 12 hours, so <laughs> biased. Um, but you know, I gave up anyway. Um, Cato and Heritage have been identified as allies from the beginning of time. So depending on what team you're on, it's either 6,000 years or billions of years. Um, <laughs> um, but they're often, <laughs> you know, they're often mentioned in the same breath, um, which I, is, I know is much to the chagrin of David Bowes, the executive vice president here. Um, you could say they go together like, I don't know, peanut butter and hamburgers, because I'm pregnant. That sounds awesome. Um, <laughs> But since their founding, the two organizations and the two EDs have always, um, they've engaged in friendly competition. And as we know, competition makes everything better and stronger. So we now have two dynamic powerhouses. Um, in fact, I was actually able to create a position here at Cato, the external relations department, um, based on that competition because I pointed out that Heritage has been a lot more effective in um, distributing and disseminating their ideas around the globe. Um, and then I was able to leverage that into some sweet trips. Um, so. You know, one of the ways that this competition between Cato and Heritage has manifested itself has been through, um, you could call it the edifice complex. Um, some of you in the room have benefited from this because you live in the lovely Heritage intern dorms. Um, the closest Cato has come to employer-subsidized housing like that um, is when I worked here, there was the really gross couch in the green room. <laughs> Did not want to sit on that with exposed skin. Um, huh. So. 
Um, you know, today, obviously, Cato and Heritage both have new presidents. Um, they're both Southern gentlemen. So I think there's, we're really going to see a big change in how this friendly competition plays out. So Chip, if you could bring up the dueling pistols, we can get started outside. <laughs> um, as Chip mentioned earlier, um, the debate has two purposes. We're going to explore the differences between the two sides and also clarify some of the similarities. Um, the Cato website says that it's dedicated to the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Um, I remember that from being a, a booth bunny. Um, and the Heritage site says it's dedicated to the principles of uh, free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and a strong national defense. So there you go. Um, traditional values and a strong national defense. Um, boom, we're done. Reception. Um, and. Uh, you know, some of the similarities are obvious, um, too. We all want to shrink the size and scope of government. We um, all want to preserve the dignity of the individual. And we, um, you know, according to some of our friends on the left, all want to rape and pillage Mother Earth. Um, but, um, you know, there are, there are a few differences, um, but they can get pretty heated. So there's um, gay marriage comes to mind, immigration comes to mind, abortion. Um, so those are just a couple. Obviously, there are a bunch more. So to try and clarify this, I talked um, to a friend who used to be a tax policy analyst at Heritage and then who moved to Cato a couple years ago. And I said, well, you know, in your mind, what's the difference between the two? And he said, well, I look at it this way. Um, it was like moving from North Korea to South Korea. Um, he, got, he got in trouble for that. He got in trouble for that. So uh, he, he said, no, I'm just kidding. No, it was like moving from Singapore to Hong Kong. And so I actually I looked at both of your indexes of economic freedom, and it turns out that um, Singapore is number two on both of those, and Hong Kong is number one. So anyway, not much help. Um, this, is, uh, this is a pretty beltway debate, right? Like libertarian, conservative. Um, you know, in my dad's mind, we're all to the right of Attila the Hun, so whatever. Um, but um, there, are, there are major global implications for this. Who's right? Who's wrong? Um, are we a community of souls? Um, is it, are Burke and Kirk and Nisbet really right? I mean, do institutions compose the fabric of society? Um, do people need community to help combat the, the centralizing power of the state? Or um, is the only higher power we need the invisible hand? Um, are Hayek and Friedman right? Um, is voluntary association and individual liberty the best way to organize a society? Is, is the market the best way to address society's ills? Um, my, my Carrie Bradshaw question for the audience is, um, have the past few decades really just been a marriage of convenience between libertarians and conservatives? And has that marriage run its course? Um, you know, is it time for David Addington to pull Penn and Teller aside and say, it's not you, it's me? Um, is it time for Heritage to speed date? Maybe the Center of American Progress will get a little hot under the collar learning about your right on crime initiative. Anything's possible. Um, you know, Jonah Goldberg has always been a big advocate of fusionism. So maybe all it takes is a bottle of red wine and a very white CD. Um, or another alternative is that um, maybe libertarians are more properly aligned with the left. Um, Brink Lindsay from Cato had suggested a libertarianism alliance um, years ago. So. These are all topics we can talk about. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's time to take a step back and ask some simple questions. Um, how many libertarians does it take to screw in a light bulb? None. Um, libertarians try and try to change things, but they never can. <laughs> um, how many conservatives does it take to change a light bulb? Why change? Four. One to change the light bulb and three to complain about how much better the old light bulb was. <laughs> uh, and just for fun, um, how many Republicans does it take to screw in a light bulb? 
come on, Republicans only screw the poor. Um, <laughs> all right, so an another way to look at this might be who is, who is making a bigger impact on society? Um, Heritage is certainly extremely effective. They've had and continue to have um, tremendous influence on Congress. Um, Heritage Action is a powerhouse. Um, the, these organizations rotate staff back and forth between the Hill and the administration, maybe not this administration, um, but you get the idea. Um, with amazing regularity, they really help a bill become a law. I have to watch Schoolhouse Rock to figure that out. Um, and to be fair, Heritage has way better ties than Cato. Um, uh, contrast that with Ed Crane from Cato um, calling members Congress critters to their faces and you start to get an idea of why Cato policies maybe aren't as implemented. Um, that being said, it certainly seems like libertarian ranks have been growing over the years. Um, even Glenn Beck recently has called himself a libertarian. Um, about a year ago, I was on a panel with uh, Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton and she turned to me and said, you know, I'm libertarian on this issue. And I thought, I had to really bite my tongue and not um, quote the Princess Bride. I do not think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> um, but maybe libertarians are cool. Um, and then, you know, at the end of the day, maybe it's just a matter of time because there is a reason people say, what is a libertarian? It's just a Republican who's been busted. Um, so, you know, more food for thought. Um, we have a terrific lineup of people who will be fighting for your hearts and minds to debate these issues. So regardless of tonight's outcomes, um, I've had the pleasure of having lunch with them and a Subway sandwich before this. Um, so I have the utmost confidence that the free market is in good hands, whoever wins. And, you know, worst case, you guys tie and we have a Thunderdome. So that's cool, too. Um, from Team Heritage, we have Yaniv, who is a recent graduate of American University. Um, he spent the last year working in New York City as a paralegal and will be attending George Washington University School of Law this August. Um, we also have Grace. Um, who is a rising junior studying international relations, Spanish, and Chinese at Wheaton College in my beloved city of Chicago, near Chicago. Um, and on Team Cato, we have um, Reagan, as in not spelled like the president, but close enough. Um, she is a rising junior at the University of Texas at Austin, studying political communications. And we also have Caleb, who is a rising senior at Harvard, majoring in economics and minoring in East Asian studies. Um, just a couple ground rules for you guys. Um, Panelists are to be uninterrupted while presenting formal arguments. Um, no ad hominem attacks on each other are permitted. Um, ad hominem attacks on scholars are permitted. So you are certainly welcome to say Roger Pallant supports NSA spying, um, or Ed Hazelmeyer was okay with Romneycare. So just lay that out there. Um, I will be monitoring your behavior. Um, if you are warned more than twice, um, each subsequent occurrence will be met with a one minute subtraction from the allotted time of your second or the next. In addition, I will force you to memorize and repeat the President's State of the Union. Um, I don't want to hear that, and neither do you, so let's be good. <laughs> um, there'll be a couple segments. Um, we'll have introductory remarks and rebuttals. Um, it's going to start with Heritage, then go to Cato, rebuttal by Heritage, rebuttal by Cato. Then we're going to move into four topical debates. The topics are the last four on your handout list. So um, in order, it's going to be um, the US should use military forces to stand for liberty. Um, the government has a role in promoting virtue. Individuals should be free to move across the US border. And the state should have a role in defining meritage. So um, that's going to be two minute answers um, each, and then one minute rebuttals per side in alternating order. So we're going to start Cato, Heritage, Heritage, Cato, and then Heritage, Cato, Cato, Heritage. Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll be pointing back and forth. We'll figure it out. Um, we'll then move into uh, a, a new section, why a libertarian should be a conservative and why a conservative should be a libertarian. 
We'll do a Q&A section. Um, as Chip mentioned, you are welcome to either put your questions in via live stream if you're watching online or you can uh, raise your hand. I'm gonna try to keep it pretty balanced and so I'm gonna say please direct your question to the team conservative, team libertarian. Um, and if you disrespect that, um, I'm gonna shut you up. Um, and you can also tweet your questions in to lvcdebate.com, pound lvcdebate.com. Um, and then we're gonna end up with concluding remarks and that's gonna go Cato Heritage. So Heritage will have the last word. Um, I look forward to seeing how the panelists do. Um, again, it's an honor for being here and you guys are gonna do great, so yay. Thank you. Yes, it is me. Um, so I first want to say thank you to the Heritage interns for joining us tonight, the spectators for joining us tonight, and uh, Cato for hosting this very important debate. I hope that I can provide a unique perspective to tonight's debate a little bit as someone who arrived at libertarianism from conservatism. I was raised in a sort of conservative background in Indiana, and from a young age, I had conservative values, and those values taught me to really appreciate individual liberty limited government and the values of our founding, our founding fathers, our founding document, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And indeed, I do believe these are our shared values. They lead us down the same path on many public policy issues. We both advocate for limited economic intervention, less regulation, and we both oppose the welfare state and we oppose top-down government planning of the economy. It's also led us to advocate for some of the same thinkers, some of the same economists and philosophers and statesmen from Ronald Reagan to Frederick Bastiat. Um, I think it's, it's con convenient that we are in Hayek Auditorium here. I had the privilege of uh, visiting the Heritage Foundation last week and just outside our conference room was a portrait of Friedrich Hayek. So this is clearly someone that we uh, both respect. But then we get to a point in the road, up until this point, libertarians and conservatives sort of follow the same intellectual path. But we get to a fork in the road when we ask, what exactly is it that we're trying to conserve? And this is where I believe libertarianism and conservatism come out as very different policies. Because libertarians will continue straight down this path and conservatives will unfortunately stray, selectively abandoning those beliefs in individual liberty and selectively abandoning an adherence to the Constitution. They support a drug war which started in 1971 by Richard Nixon has been supported by conservatives since. It violates individual liberty, violates states' rights and federalism, and isn't constitutionally authorized. Conservatives recently, as we saw in the last election, have spoken against free trade, specifically against China. Free trade is supposed to be a conservative ideal. Our belief in the individual and in economic liberty sort of goes away when we talk about immigration, and our shared opposition to top-down economic planning goes away when we talk about military interventionism and using U.S. military to impose democratic ideals through coercion and force around the world. Now, this isn't to say that conservatives and Republicans are the same, but these do seem to be policies from policymakers that conservatives have supported of late. And we see that these policies, in a way, are like those of liberal Democrats. That is, they do advocate for big government. Friedrich Hayek, that thinker that we both championed, actually wrote to this effect. He wrote something called Why I'm Not a Conservative, as Nikki mentioned, and he says, quote, the conservative does not object to coercion or arbitrary power so long as it is used for what he regards as the right purpose. Like the socialist, he's less concerned 
with how government should be limited than with that of who wields the power. End quote. Libertarians don't believe this. We believe in a consistent defense of individual liberty and a consistent adherence to the Constitution as the most moral and the most practical way to govern a society. We believe in God-given rights and recognize that governments are necessary to protect those rights. Indeed, as Thomas Jefferson said, to protect these rights, governments are instituted among men and derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. We therefore do not believe in absolute license. We're not anarchists. Most of us aren't anarchists. <laughs> and we do not believe that the individual is the only unit in society that matters. But we do recognize that a limited government, which consistently respects individual liberty, is the best way to preserve and protect not only the individual, but the institutions we care about. Families, churches, charitable organizations, institutions that have been around long before economic, excuse me, long before government intervention, and will be here long after any specific government. So again, where we differ is in that fork in the road when we decide what is it that we're going to conserve. Libertarians don't want to conserve a drug war. We don't want to conserve military interventionism. What we do want to conserve are those founding principles, individual liberty, limited government. And in that way, I believe libertarians are the ones who truly conserve the ideals that we both share. It is this fact that has led me from conservatism more towards libertarianism. And I hope that you can keep an open mind in tonight's debate and perhaps come to the same conclusion as I have and figure out that liberty might not be, or might just be, excuse me, the more practical approach. Thank you. First of all, I'd just like to start off by thanking the Cato Institute for hosting us. We really appreciate having the opportunity to come here and debate. Um, I'd also like to thank Heather and Andalise from the Heritage Foundation for all of their work in organizing this, as well as all of the research teams that assisted us with preparation. I'd also like to thank Malika, especially, and Elliot Geiser for their support during this whole process. So what brings immigrants to America? Some come for political freedom. For my mother, she came to the United States in 1975 to flee the chaos and oppression of the fall of the South Vietnamese government. Some come for economic opportunity. My father came, as many Korean immigrant families do, seeking a better life. And underlying almost all immigrants' dreams is the chance to give their children, their posterity, a hopeful future. People come to America to enjoy liberty and the blessings of liberty described by the Constitution. Working a steady job, that is a blessing of liberty. Building a strong, loving family, that is a blessing of liberty. Traveling from the Cato Institute back to your intern housing without getting mugged, that also is a blessing of liberty. Every day we enjoy these blessings because those who came before us established a system of government that fosters human flourishing, but checks the forces of human selfishness and evil that would destroy it. With regard to today's question then, is conservatism or libertarianism the better political philosophy? We answer that conservatism is the better philosophy because, quite simply, it keeps America a place that people want to come to. We see this summarized by three terms, principles, prudence, and posterity. First, conservatives share a common set of principles. We believe in limited government, personal responsibility, virtue, and, yes, liberty. Liberty enables us to pursue the higher things in life, 
the virtues of justice, truth, and beauty. We believe with John Winthrop that liberty is the power to do what is right. It is the freedom to use creativity and innovation to achieve prosperity in a nation secured by strength and law. It is the freedom to build a family and educate your children according to your own beliefs. It is the freedom to pursue your own faith and lay your own threads into the rich tapestry of community nourished around you by true liberty. Government, then, is a necessary institution. The rule of law maintains virtuous liberty without allowing license to lead to anarchy. In other words, conservatism puts these principles into public policy. By contrast, libertarians really only have one principle. Liberty is their god. They think that human reason will naturally restrain selfishness, corruption, and carelessness. It's a wonderful dream, but it's just that, a dream, not grounded in reality. Second, conservatives practice these principles with prudence. Prudence means applying discretion, and in light of history and human experience, crafting effective policies. We know that humans are not good 100% of the time, so we promote policies that restrain mankind's tendencies towards anarchy and despotism. Libertarians would like to throw off such restrictions, but history has illustrated time and time again, from Robespierre's French Revolution to Mao's Cultural Revolution, that untempered liberty destroys the institutions of tradition, culture, and morality with devastating consequences. Third, conservatives advocate for the minimum rule of laws necessary to maximize prosperity, both in the present and for our posterity. If today were all that mattered, then we'd say, go ahead, eat, drink, and be merry. Shoot up heroin, open the borders, let the family fall to pieces, and cast national defense to the wind because Keynes is right. In the long run, we're all dead. <laughs> Yet, as William F. Buckley said, conservatism is the politics of reality. And the reality is that tomorrow does matter. The problem with libertarian policies, such as legalizing drugs, open borders, a weak defense policy, is that they end in anarchy or in some new form of tyranny. With libertarianism, there is no future to pass on to our children. Conservatism and libertarianism share some characteristics, but they're not the same. Because we know that work, family, and security are essential for a prosperous society. Because we know that people without prudent laws won't just get along. Because we know that wise policies today will allow us to hand out a prosperous America to the next generation tomorrow, we contend that conservatism is the better political philosophy. Millions have come to America for the blessings of liberty but libertarian policies would ultimately destroy this America. And Dostoevsky's words, to begin with unlimited freedom is to end with unlim unlimited despotism. If you love freedom and hope your children will inherit it, then conservatism is for you, since it is the only philosophy that will truly keep America free. I'd like to thank our colleague from Heritage for presenting us with some very interesting arguments about conservatism and libertarianism this evening, but I would like to clear up a few misconceptions that were presented in this argument. 
The first has to do with the conception of libertarians as anarchists. This is a cheap shot that is simply painting an inaccurate picture of libertarians. While we were at Heritage, one of the figures that we saw most widely represented was the great president, Ronald Reagan. We were somewhat inspired by this and decided to see what he had to say on a lot of these issues. President Ronald Reagan said, government's first duty is to protect the people, not run their lives. They are right in asserting that humans are not good 100% of the time, and we recognize that government is sometimes necessary in protecting individual liberty. However, that coercion should be used only to protect us from other people and not from ourselves. Next, we can address the argument that libertarianism is not grounded in reality and that it is simply unrealistic or unsustainable. You mentioned that we found that we have a lot of the same foundational arguments. We take root in the Constitution and our founding fathers. We believe in a small, limited government and an ability to act without coercion. Saying that this is unrealistic when we come from the same roots is almost like saying that your own ideas are unrealistic because they come from those same roots. If we come from the same basis of ideology, there has to be some sort of overlap in how realistic our arguments are. And finally, I would like to invite the audience to take a close look at when Heritage presents their arguments for prudence. They said that we need prudence in crafting public policy. However, what they usually mean is pragmatism. These are pragmatic things for them to, to create policies on, not things that are necessarily prudent. You'll see that they most frequently use the word prudence when they are going to diverge from these founding ideologies. These are just a few misconceptions that were brought up in Heritage's argument, and I would like to invite you to continue thinking about these misconceptions throughout the debate. What are we trying to conserve? The regime of the founders. Libertarians are not. Would the founders support the legalization of dangerous drugs for consumption by citizens? Would the founders support an immigration plan that disregards rule of law, the basis of ordered society? Jefferson, your ideal libertarian, sent a fleet to North Africa to fight piracy without congressional authorization. Yet now libertarians claim that we have to abandon our commitments to protect international shipping and allies whose liberty is constantly threatened for the kind of isolationism that allowed Nazi Germany to rise. Libertarianisms love to make appeals to the founders, but the founders were a group of people who understood human nature. They created checks against it. They understood that people, when left to their own devices, won't always do the best things. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. And a true commitment to liberty is more than spouting empty words as you watch the world crumble. Not bad, guys. I'm impressed so far. Also, we're way ahead on time. Um, we're going to move into the topical debates uh, section. So um, as I said before, there are going to be four topics. Um, we're, 
each side is going to give two-minute answers and then a one-minute rebuttal per side in alternating order. So um, we're going to start out Cato, Heritage, and then Heritage is going to rebut immediately, and Cato is going to rebut. And then we're going to flip that. So I basically am just going to start pointing back and forth. Um, for this, you guys are going to stay at your seats just to minimize weird shuffling time. Um, so that, with that being said, um, the first resolution is the U.S. should use military forces to stand for liberty. Go. Well, I think this is an interesting question to debate tonight because it does seem over the last few decades that we've decided we need to use our military for a host of things, for democratizing the Middle East, for transforming failed states to stable democracies, for humanitarian missions, for protecting European and Asian countries that often don't need our protection, and a whole host of things that are really far removed from the proper objective of the Department of Defense. But what's that all gotten us? A study by the Wasson Institute at Brown University estimates that the, intervention is, the interventions in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iraq will cost the United States $6 trillion. That's about $20,000 per person. And the U.S. gain? Our international reputation has been tarnished. We've had 66,000 soldiers killed or wounded, 200,000 diagnosed with PTSD, and Americans lost that $20,000 to spend on a college education or a down payment on a house. And how about the nations we intervened in? Economic devastation combined with hundreds of thousands of casualties further destabilized those regions and so strengthened the resolve of radical groups that now the extremist groups actually have more influence. So this isn't to be misconstrued that libertarians don't have a solution for promoting liberty in the world. We simply don't believe that we should do it by running the world militarily and with you know, US military hegemony. We believe that we would be far more effective in promoting liberty by having free trade. Thomas Jefferson did say, uh, quote, peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, but entangling alliances with none. And I point to Vietnam to prove this. Uh, we spent over 10 plus years in Vietnam, lost 50,000 lives, and it wasn't a bit more free than when we got there when we left. However, by trading with Vietnam over the last couple of years, they've made strides. China, too, has made strides. It's certainly not perfect, but I think no one could argue that it's as bad as it used to be, and a good reason for that is from trading with the United States. Thank you. In 2012, Ayatollah Khamenei said, from now onward, we will support and help any nations, any groups fighting across the Zionist regime. The Zionist regime is a true cancer tumor on this region that should be cut off, and it definitely will be cut off. The reality is, is that there are many irrational actors and states that would like nothing more than to take away the liberty of others. We believe that the United States has a responsibility to defend its allies and defend liberty when it is prudent. And I'd just like to comment here on the definition of prudence. I think one thing that, um, that the libertarians overlooked when we presented the definition of prudence is that prudence is, based, is making decisions and making policies based on our understanding of human nature and our understanding of history. History has shown us time and time again that there is a time to intervene to use the military to defend the liberty of others. We're not saying that the United States needs to intervene in every single conflict, but if you look back to even the foundings of America, the American Revolution, we would have never been able to defeat Great Britain through free trade or to claim our own liberty without using military force, and we would never have been able to claim our own liberty without the assistance of France. So I really think that libertarians are overlooking the critical role that it plays, um, that using the military plays not only in assisting our allies, but in intervening in situations to defend the liberty of others 
others when it is prudent. And I think that's something important to remember throughout this debate. Um, additionally, they make an argument about free trade. I think it's really critical to understand that free trade cannot happen without a strong military and without using your military to, to secure critical zones where free trade happens. A good example of this is the Arctic. If you look at the Arctic right now that's been opening up, you can see that Russia, China both have um, a military presence there as they prepare for the amount of shipping that will be able to go through and the amount of resources that will be made available in the Arctic. The United States needs to use its military to defend liberty and to protect free trade because the reality is that without a strong military, without the presence of the US military in other countries, there can be no free trade. Thank you. <clears throat> We're going to be put on the block today. We're going to be called neocons. We're going to say that we want to stabilize the world. And I'm not here to defend the actions of past administrations. I think you haven't seen a real conservative president since Reagan. Um, he, the libertarians want to talk about protecting, uh, protecting Europe and disaster abroad. Frankly, Europe, our military commitment has been scaled down drastically in the past 10 years. It's a non-issue. Disaster abroad, Afghanistan has a rapidly growing GDP. They're, de they're developing minerals in their soil. They're developing things other than opium. Their literacy rates are skyrocketing. Over 70% of Afghanis say they would never want to see the Taliban come back. That's not a disaster. Let's talk about the role of America now. The founders were in the past when we were 13 backwater colonies. Be prudent. And that's not, pragma that's not pragmatism. That's responsibility. If Afghanistan is a success story, then I would hate to see what the, what the conservatives would say is a, uh, an example of failure. Um, <laughs> we, um, I want to address the argument that the U.S. is needed. It has a responsibility to protect liberty around the world. The first thing we should do is ask, have we done a very good job at doing that? I mean, we armed Saddam Hussein when we tried to intervene. We've, we put in a new Iranian government. That clearly didn't work out. I pointed to Vietnam where we had 10 plus years and 50,000 lives. I question that these are the same conservatives who say that our they, they, they have skepticism that our government can deliver the mail, but not that they can deliver democracy around the world somehow. <laughs> so I would apply pretty strong scrutiny um, to an example where we would need interventionism. And I would say that based on our track record, uh, the United States would improve its security by bringing a lot of its forces back home and by not engaging in this kind of interventionism around the world in military hegemony. Thanks. Um, our next topic, um, the resolution that we will now discuss is the government has a role in promoting virtue. And we're going to go heritage, Cato, Cato, heritage. So, heritage. <clears throat> Losing it here. My podium. <clears throat> Every law is a moral law. Everything the government does either adds or subtracts from the common virtue. The founders did, and conservatives still understand that humans are by no means inherently virtuous. The best institutions for promoting virtue may not be government. There are families, there are schools, community-based institutions like the church, the synagogue, the reading club, the bowling team, what have you. But government can incentivize virtue. How? By writing laws that give citizens and groups benefits for virtuous conduct. You look for things that maybe could be more virtuous. For example, you look for things like requiring work for people to receive government benefits. I know it's a taboo subject here, but these things exist. 
and it's within the law's purview to do so. Libertarians will say that the government has no role in virtue, but by promoting virtue, we better the entire community. We end up with less people who need the state's assistance. Virtuous communities are more free, and by promoting virtue, we're essentially investing in our communities. It pays back, it pays back dividends, and ends up, saving, it ends up saving us in the long run. We don't seek to better one group for political or religious reasons, and we do not seek to coerce. Incentives are not coercive, they're simply a benefit. We don't want strong families because they vote a certain way. We want strong families because they're the best chance American children have of being happy and successful. The promotion of virtue seeks to benefit the nation as a whole. There's no staying out. There's no legislative neutrality. You can proclaim it until you're blue in the face. If there's something happening that is harmful to the virtues and mores of a community, and you do nothing to stop it, you have issued de facto acceptance of that conduct. Any law proffers a moral code, and it should be a good one. Conservatives often like to paint libertarians as a group who is anti-virtue in society. However, this is something that is simply not true. We agree that virtue is a good thing for society. However, we don't think that the proper place to promote virtue is in government. This can be seen in three main areas. The first being that we can preserve a space for virtue without promoting it. The second being that the government is not an appropriate place for virtue. And the third being that it sets a dangerous precedent. We do largely agree that virtue in society is valuable. However, this is something that should be left to communities and families to promote and endorse and teach their children. This is not an area that needs government promotion. We need to ensure that people have the freedom to pursue, discover, and learn virtue but the government should not promote virtue itself. Next, we can see that the government is simply not an appropriate place for the promotion of virtue. The Founding Fathers very deliberately created a system that was based on self-evident truths. Handpicking virtues for the government to promote is antithetical to this idea. Virtue is a highly arbitrary concept, and as St. Thomas Aquinas noted, because of the diverse conditions of humans, it happens that some acts are virtuous to some people, while those same acts are immoral to others. Promoting these arbitrary virtues is something that we cannot support in our government. Finally, we see that this sets a dangerous precedent. Supporters of government promotion of virtue often only consider the possibility that their own virtues would be promoted. However, giving the government this power sets a precedent that could easily allow for coercive measures to force people to accept and act upon the virtues that are chosen at the whim of the ruling party. Thank you. And we're going to do a Cato rebuttal now. The Heritage team argues that every law is a moral law. We see things very similarly in that any kind of government incentive or promotion is doing just that. It is, it is promoting those specific values over others in society. We, we, cannot, we simply cannot afford to subsidize or give money to every single religious group in the United States. It is not feasible. But we also have to question if we really want the government in charge of promoting these virtues. 
I want you to think about the people in government that you interact with on a daily basis. People at the DMV, meter maids, are these really the people that you want promoting virtues in society? Are these the people that you want to hand the power to in terms of virtue? I would say it's not. All right, Madam Heritage. <clears throat> We're being told that government shouldn't promote things, that, that it's inappropriate for government to get involved in virtue. It already is involved in virtue. It's the central point I'm trying to make. When a law tells citizens what to do, it is establishing a moral code. When you are told by the government, do not kill, do not steal, uphold contracts, that becomes your moral code. The fact that it's written down in the Fed statutes doesn't change it. We're being told that we are handpicking arbitrary mores. There are things we can all agree on, are right and wrong. That's, it's the basis of human morality. There are things that we all know. That being said, the idea that somehow some sort of government would tyrannically impose morals on people, that the Constitution expressly keeps us from doing that sort of thing. We're a republic. We're here to check tyranny. That's why we advocate limited government, not the kind of government you see today. I wouldn't want them running morality. I wouldn't want them running a thing. A limited government, however, different story. All right. Um, just because we're, we're still on schedule, I'm going to um, remind everyone in our viewing audience, um, or at least online, um, please, if you have any questions for our panelists, tweet them to pound LVC debate or um, send them to Michael online through the live stream. So. With that, we'll move to the next topic. Um, the next resolution is individuals should be free to move across the U.S. border. And this will go Cato, Heritage, Heritage, Cato. As a native Texan, immigration is a topic that has been very prevalent in my life, and it's something that very literally cl hits close to home. But as a libertarian, I think it's imperative that we see that our borders should be open, and that is something that we should promote. The main reasons for this are first, that the skill set of immigrants tend to complement those of our workforce. The second being that strict immigration policies simply hurt the economy. And the final point being that open borders can enhance rather than detract from national security. The bulk of our American workforce is concentrated in mid-level employment. However, what we've seen with immigration is that those people are either very low-skilled workers or very high-skilled workers. In this way, they fill the gaps in our, in our workforce that we need people to work in. They are not taking jobs away from Americans despite what many would lead you to believe. Next, we can see that strict immigration policy hurts our economy. It's incorrect to assume that immigrants will be a drain on society, as they are both consumers and contributors. A clear case of this can be seen in Arizona. After instituting stricter immigration policy, the state experienced massive economic losses that were paralleled only by the housing crisis. They saw things like higher home vacancy rates and drops in employment as a result of instituting these harsher policies. Finally, we can see that open borders can enhance our national security. The bureaucracy currently involved with handling immigration-related regulations costs $30 billion annually, and that's just the paperwork. Right now, our immigration policies have us looking for threats like a needle in a haystack. 
allowing the legal immigration of peaceful individuals not only makes it easier to spot potential threats, but it also allows us to use our funds more responsibly. Today, you've heard that immigration is an almost unrivaled tool for economic prosperity. People come to America to work hard, and they would want to come here to create opportunities for themselves and their family. I would like to tell you, and Grace would like to tell you, that as the children of immigrants, it's all true. There are caveats, prudent checks on our actions that we need to realize exist. Controlled, legal immigration is what we need to be looking for. Immigration only works as a tool for prosperity if your government hasn't created a welfare state that so subverts this boon, it turns it into a loss. For every household headed by persons without a high school degree, which is the average for an undocumented immigrant, they receive $46,582 in government benefits while paying only $11,469 in taxes. It's an average fiscal de deficit of about $35,000. <clears throat> Formal or unlawful immigrant households under the plan that Cato seems to think is a good idea would become fully eligible for means-tested welfare and healthcare benefits under the Affordable Care Act. The aggregate annual deficit would soar to around, to around 106 billion. Add that to our current deficit. It's an, it's an economic boon to open our borders, right guys? As much as we want to pretend that we're loved around the world, there exist people who want to do harm to innocent American civilians. A totally porous border would allow these people to just stroll in unquestioned. Any legitimate government can only claim that title if it protects the lives of the, of the citizens within its borders. Because liberty is non-existent if your life isn't secure. I believe we can have a secure border and an immigration policy that helps our nation grow while improving the lives of immigrants. I believe in immigration. I have to. A 2012 Gallup survey showed that um, 150 million people around the world said that if they could immigrate to the US, they would. I think that the libertarian arguments seem to make sense at first, but if you really look at what they're saying, I think they're running too far in the other direction. We believe that there should be immigration reform. There are many immigrants that have skill sets that would definitely benefit the US economy, but we think that we need to reform the immigration system, not completely abolish it. I think it's a little bit counterintuitive to say that, you know, there's low-skilled and high-skilled immigrants that would benefit the economy, and then say, but we're gonna get rid of borders, so it doesn't really matter, anyone can come in. I think having a reformed legal immigration system that fits the market's needs for labor is much more um, realistic and much more um, helpful for the United States. Additionally, I think that, again, we need reform, not open, open borders. We're not advocating necessarily for stricter border policies. We believe that there does need to be strong border security. We, we do need to have borders, um, but we're saying that there needs to be reform. Additionally, I think that it would um, immensely harm national security to have an open border. The visa system and the immigration system checks terrorism, checks people who would like to do harm to U.S. citizens. It's like saying we shouldn't have security on airplanes and at airports. I think we need to control who comes into the U.S. for the sake of citizens' liberty. Thank you. I think my partner already addressed the national security argument, so I'll try to move on to the one about welfare. I think America is a nation built on immigrants, as we've said, and we had open borders for over 100 years, didn't have devastating consequences. Now, I will grant that we didn't have the type of welfare state then that we have today. Um, and yes, immigrants are, on average, more poor than the average American, but looking at Similar socioeconomic status as immigrants are actually less likely to go on government welfare. These people do want to come here to work. And those numbers that my opponents used are a little bit misleading. They must be taken in context. Um, when 
when you talk about projections of the economy, that actually only costs one half of 1% of GDP, and it's only 1.4% of all federal money. So I don't think that's a devastating consequence. I think that it's inhumanitarian to not have open borders, to not allow these people to come to the land of opportunity like America's been. And if we take that promise seriously, then we should return to open borders. All right, then we now move to our last resolution. The state should have a role in defining heritage. It's gonna go heritage, Cato, Cato, heritage. An important thing to start with when looking at this debate is to keep in mind the question of the resolution. Does the state or does the state not have a role in defining marriage? We believe that ultimately the state has an interest in the future of our society, in the future generations that are to come, and that marriage is one of the most effective ways to ensure that there is a future generation that has um, hope of a prosperous future, which is why we believe that the state does need to have a role in defining marriage in the traditional sense um, as between a man and a woman. Um, if you look at the fact that right now the breakdown of marriage and the breakdown of um, commitment within marriage relationships between a man and a woman has definitely hurt society. A Brookings Institution study found that $229 billion in welfare expenditures between 1970 and 1996 can be attributed to the breakdown of the marriage culture and the resulting exacerbation of social ills, teen pregnancy, poverty, crime, drug abuse, and health problems. If you look at the reality that the nuclear family is one of the keys to ensuring a prosperous society, when you have a mother and a father in the home, this is, this is essential for a child to have a better chance at education, at escaping from poverty, at many different factors that are essential to the prosperity of all Americans. Um, we believe that the least, um, the least intrusive way for the state to ensure that there is a future generation, that there will be a prosperous future for the children, is to define marriage as between a man and a woman. This is the least restrictive role that the state can play, while still influencing culture and setting a norm that commitment within a family relationship is ultimately about benefiting the children and benefiting the future generations of America. Um, the libertarians would like to tell you that Marriage should just be about the emotional desires of adults. Um, but ultimately, we believe that marriage is about producing a future generation about children. If marriage is just about the emotional desires of adults, then the government has no role. I think it's actually more intrusive for the government to be regulating our own individual desires. But when it becomes about children, the welfare of society, and the future generations, then we believe the government should have a role. A true libertarian perspective would dictate that government be out of marriage entirely. Unfortunately, it's highly improbable that we'll see this kind of government willingly relinquish that control since, as Ronald Reagan aptly put it, government programs once launched never disappear. Actually, a government bureau is the nearest thing to eternal life we'll ever see on this earth. In light of this reality, we should look at applying these laws fairly and equally. So we can see that the state should absolutely not have a role in defining marriage for three main reasons. First, because the state legislation of marriage has been a disaster. Second, because it is a social institution that largely regulates itself. And finally, because marriage is and always has been a personal commitment. State legislation of marriage has been a mess. The state's involvement with marriage has spun complicated webs of policy for issues like hospital visitation and tax code. Furthermore, it creates exclusionary and discriminatory policies that exclude a, or a section of our population from something that has been consistently described as an inherent right. Next, we can see that the social institution of marriage regulates itself. Marriage as a social institution does not require the government to define or regulate it outside of enforcing disputed contracts. 
as they noted, there is a sense of a norm with marriage. However, these norms and public perceptions are constantly shifting and government policies simply are not keeping up. Finally, we can see that marriage is and always has been a personal commitment. There is no inherent reason for the government to involve itself in the personal lives of its citizens. The regulation of marriage as a personal decision is one that represents an inherent encroachment on the individual freedoms of Americans. For these reasons, we simply cannot let the government have a role in defining marriage. I want to address some of the arguments my opponents made that I found unconvincing. Um, the failures that they mentioned, those are failures of heterosexual marriage, and that shouldn't be a reason to uh, define marriage as only between a man and a woman. And if we want to use the argument for children, if we really want to do what's best for children in society, we don't uh, ban pedophiles from getting married or axe murderers from getting married or a lot of other things. And furthermore, if you really believe that the heterosexual family is the best way to raise a child, that evidence is disputed. But for the sake of argument, if you do believe that, it's not as if we're taking children away from heterosexual parents and giving them to homosexual parents. The alternative is kids who are in orphanages, who don't have parents, or kids who wouldn't have the ability to live otherwise. So we believe that we believe that monogamous homosexual relationships and marriages can also be a benefit to society. It's not competing with heterosexual marriages, it's competing with no marriage at all. So we believe that those failures you mentioned, the, the importance of parents and the importance of raising kids, would actually be improved by defining marriage as, or by getting the government out of defining marriage, excuse me, thank you. It's interesting at the beginning of their debate that they said um, it's improbable for the state to get out of marriage, but then they went to make all these arguments on why this should happen. I think it is improbable that the state is gonna get out of marriage. I think that honestly, the government is gonna have a role in defining marriage, and we believe that because the government is going to have that role, that they should have um, a role in establishing a norm. This doesn't mean that in America, you don't have the freedom to love who you want to, to be with who you want to, but when it comes to making committed relationships for the sake of children, we believe that the government should have a role in defining in the traditional sense. And this is simply because the government's laws establish norms, and norms affect culture. It affects the way that we view things. And in general, and this is, again, speaking in a very general sense, I think you can get into the details of, of, different, of different questions and that those are more personal issues, but when looking at society as a whole, we think the government should set a norm for the traditional state of marriage simply because we believe that this does benefit children. This benefits the future generations. It's, and, and they say, you know, the failures of heterosexual marriage are what we talked about in the beginning. I think that's more attributed to the failures of perceiving marriage incorrectly that it's about personal desires and not about commitment for the sake of children and the future generation. Thank you. All right. Good job, guys. We'll now move on to the next section of our event, um, why a libertarian should be a conservative and why a conservative should be a libertarian. We're going to start with Heritage on this one. <clears throat> why should libertarians be conservatives? In a sentence, because we're the better libertarians. In conservatism, you will find something that libertarianism lacks and is inherently incapable of attaining, a liberty that lasts. A libertarian might say that liberty is simply the freedom to do whatever you like, so long as it doesn't directly harm another. But conservatives seek a different, more meaningful expression of liberty, and that is this. Freedoms I know will be exercised by my grandchildren. My own freedoms are meaningless if they perish with me. Only through the permanence and consistency of our liberties can we express our enduring respect for them. If allowed to run this country, libertarianism would do to social capital through isolationism and rampant license, what Marxism did to financial capital through stifling of opportunity and government fiat. 
To a libertarian, the idea that we can legalize all drugs makes perfect sense. People should be able to do what they want. The government tell you, telling you otherwise seems uh, pretty overbearing, right? But the use of hard drugs in America now does not suggest rational adults building a libertarian paradise. Just the opposite. Many of these people are barely living hand to mouth, if that, and often embrace government support of one form or another. Hardly the libertarian ideal. Open borders would result in the weakening of our sovereignty and the dissolution of our democracy. Social policies that weaken our families will erode the best institution for education and prosperity in America. And a non-interventionist foreign policy would keep our fleets from protecting international shipping, threatening the very free trade libertarians claim to uphold. Libertarians fail to recognize the truth about human nature. With no checks on liberty to ensure its permanence, <clears throat> liberty, liberty becomes meaningless, a cheap rhetorical trick used to clothe our desire to enjoy ourselves while we can as we discard all thought of future generations. Conservative, conservatism, however, saves liberty by placing the minimal conditions on it needed to preserve the character of a free people. We're concerned with the common good, not individual desires. Only that way can we ensure that the liberty we inherited at birth is inherited by the next generation. Sustainability, ladies and gentlemen. I'm a sustainable libertarian, a conservative. Conservatives don't seek to legislate morality. We do not choose between faiths, giving government preference only to those we approve of. That idea is entirely repugnant to the Constitution and therefore inconsistent with conservatism. But there are virtues our founders believed we must all agree are just and necessary. Certain truths we hold to be self-evident. We shouldn't kill each other. We shouldn't live off of someone else's dime or spend outside our means. When we start families, we should stick by them, especially if there are children involved. We should all play by the rules, and those rules should apply equally to everyone. Think about the application of those virtues. There are concrete benefits to a virtuous citizenry that abides by these truths. Yet that virtue, and therefore those benefits, can only exist if our citizenry chooses to be virtuous. That choice, if made for them by the government, is meaningless. However, what government can and must do is encourage and promote virtuous conduct. It ought not to seek or coerce one group for political reasons, but it must enshrine those certain truths about virtue and law if we are to keep our republic free. Only by doing so can we appeal to the better angels of our nature, and only by that appeal can we give to our posterity the blessings of a liberty that lasts. All right, and now the other side, why a conservative should be a libertarian. Yeah, well, it's gonna be impossible for me to address everything that my opponent just said. Um, why those problems he mentioned are actually caused by a prohibition, or why we're not isolationists because we don't want to control the world with our military. But this is why conservatives should be a libertarian, so I'm not going to pick too much of a bone. Um, in making this appeal, I want to go back to my opening statement a little bit, which was why you know, I had conservative values growing up. My parents are hardworking Americans in the heart of Indiana, and they taught me that those were the things that mattered. Limited government and individual liberty were what mattered. I believe that those beliefs are at the core of both of our philosophies. But I also think that conservatives have failed people like my parents, or they've failed conservatives that truly want to conserve those values, limited government and individual liberty. I believe that they are too quick to advocate for big government, and I believe that in some ways they talk out of both ends of their mouth. I, I, I mentioned that these are the same conservatives who say the government's not going to be efficient in providing mail services, but it's going to be, it's going to be efficient in delivering democracy across the world. This is why Hayek abandoned conservatism and why I'm not a conservative. But Hayek defined conservatism as an opposition to change. And I don't want to believe that that's really what conservatism is. I want to believe, like Ronald Reagan did, that 
the basis of conservatism was a desire for less government and more freedom. And I think if I do that, I'll arrive at the same conclusion as Ronald Reagan, who said, and I quote, that the very heart and soul of conservatism is libertarianism. That's what I want to believe. I don't want to believe that conservatism is just an opposition to change. I want to believe that they want to conserve these values. And I think if you want to conserve these values, you'll also find libertarianism. And you'll find that libertarianism is the philosophy that truly conserves those things that we both say we value. It tells us to believe in liberty. It tells us to believe in the Founding Fathers, to believe in the Constitution, and I believe in a continuing society that can prosper and flourish in a free way. Thank you. All right, we're now gonna move on to the Q&A. Um, as I mentioned earlier, this is not pile on one team or the other. We're gonna try to keep things pretty balanced. We're also gonna be fielding questions from our online audience, so I'm gonna be looking over at Michael, who I will be depending on to um, interject evenly. Um, and um, again, I ask you to introduce yourself. Um, if you have an organization you're affiliated with, state that, and please ask a question. Um, no offense, but these guys were chosen, not you, so let's keep it short. Um, all right, um, we'll start here. Should I stand, or can I sit, or what? Uh, whatever. Stand. All right, uh, my name is Ryan Mulvey, and I'm unaffiliated tonight. Um, so this, this question is directed specifically towards uh, uh, team conservative. When, when we were discussing uh, earlier in the topical debates the issue of the government promotion of virtue, you said that it was important as a, as a matter of prudence, but at the same time you qualified, I wouldn't want a government like the one we have now, I assume you mean the Obama administration, uh, a progressive liberal uh, government, uh, doing the incentivization of virtue, right? Um, isn't that the problem? Once you vest uh, the power to promote virtue in government in a democratic society, how do you assure the wrong and bad people from being the ones with the power to promote? I'm, I'm really glad that you've given me this question because you completely misunderstood me. When I said I don't, wouldn't want a government like the one we have today legislating virtue, I didn't mean the Obama administration. I meant the rampant, out-of-control administrative state where rules are written by unelected bureaucrats. And that's been going on for far longer than the past eight years. That's been going on for closer to the past 80. I wouldn't want a government where the vast majority of the laws about my life are written by people who I have never elected and whom I will never meet, legislating my virtue and morality. I would want a proper, limited government that returns rights back to the states and more importantly, to the people. Um, I'd like to have the next question go to Team Libertarian, so if you have one of those. Um, you in the blue shirt. What? <laughs> Microphone. But we want the viewers at home to hear you. I'm Steven, and I'm independent this evening. Um, a recent Gallup poll stated that 150 million people worldwide would move to the U.S. if they could. A Pew poll said nearly 40 million Mexicans themselves would move here if they could. How does libertarianism defend the destruction of culture that is the inevitable result of such an influx and assume an economy can support such an invasion? To address your first point about a national identity, I don't think it's fair to say that we have one certain national identity. We are a widely diverse country, and so to say that immigrants will destroy this abstract concept of Americanism doesn't really make sense. We had open borders for the for a hundred of our most formative years in which the Americanism that you might be 
asserting there is were formed. So I don't think it's fair to say that this is going to destroy our national identity. In terms of infrastructure, it is difficult to say what these impacts would be exactly. However, I think our arguments showed that they are not nearly as massive as a lot of statistics out there might lead you to believe because all these numbers have to be taken in context of our economic growth projections and our GDP. All right, um, let's take a question from online. So if you can give it the mic to Michael. So the first question is for uh, both teams, actually, uh, which is uh, from uh, at news underscore follow on Twitter. Uh, Edward Snowden, hero or traitor? Oh. All right, we'll start with Team Cato. Team Libertarian, I mean. Um, well, this is a tough question. Um, but I think uh, it's more nuanced than hero or traitor, either way. But um, there are some things which are troubling about the way our government has been dealing with Snowden, I think. Um, the authoritarian way in which we sort of bully other nations to give him back um, and we could violate other nations' sovereignty in this way. Um, and also, Edward Snowden revealed, revealed things to the American people, perhaps maybe that he should ha shouldn't have, but he is being tried, or the government has charged him with treason, which is giving information to your enemies and so this sort of insinuates that the people are the enemy of the government, which I don't think is a good ideal to have in our society. Um, but like I said, Snowden also did, uh, he had a commitment, he had a job that he was supposed to uh, keep to that commitment and you know, sort of maintain the um, clandestine nature of his knowledge. So I think it's more nuanced than that, but there are, there are problems with saying he's a traitor or a hero. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I think that's that about answers the question. Right, team conservative. I, I think that conservatives are definitely on both sides of the fence with regard to Snowden. I don't think there's a clear consensus about whether or not he's, as you said, a hero or a traitor. Um, I guess from my understanding of what's happened though with Snowden, I mean, he entered into the NSA with the intention of gaining, getting the information, um, of breaking the law to disseminate. So I would lean towards the side of, um, it's really important to protect um, the information that you have. It's really important to respect the rule of law. I think that the way that he's disseminated the information, if he really wanted to protect America and to give US citizens information about this that he could have gone about it in a better manner. Do you have anything to add? That being said, um, in light of the recent stories about just how much it cost the NSA to listen to all of our, uh, or to track our metadata, um, thanks, for, thanks for pointing that one out, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, I'm going to exercise moderator's prom privilege. I'm going to interject a question. Um, I actually, full disclosure, I'm one of the original members of Young Conservatives for the Freedom Theory. My friends here might disagree that such a thing can exist, but um, that being said, I'd like to ask um, Team Libertarian a question. Um, after the recent SCOTUS decisions, a lot of my conservative friends have expressed concerns about um, the implications that, these, um, that this will have on religious liberty. Um, they've cited cases of private companies that are starting to be um, sued because they don't want to service um, same-sex marriages. So um, I'd like to get your input on that. Do you think that um, this is a dangerous precedent? Um, obviously, we can't get the government out of marriage. So um, how are we going to address this moving forward in a constructive way? Well, F.A. Hayek said that to live and work successfully with others requires more than a faithfulness to one's concrete aims. It requires an intellectual commitment to a type of order in which, even on issues which to one are fundamental, others are allowed to pursue different ends. 
I think this is a very important issue for a lot of people to consider in our society because we have personal views that we hold very deeply, but it's extremely important to realize that we have widely differing opinions in our nation and we need to respect the rights of others to hold those opinions. In terms of the DOMA case specifically, I think this actually points more directly to why we shouldn't have a government involvement with marriage at all. Since this could possibly obligate religious institutions to do things that are against their point of view, this very widely seems to be a step towards a policy that would encro encroach on the individual freedoms of Americans. And I think it really reinforces the fact that our government should not be involved with this institution. Yeah, but that's kind of a cop-out. I mean, we all want to say the government shouldn't be involved in marriage, but it is. It's in the tax code. It's in, like, all these different rules and regulations. Um, so you can't just say that because, aside from the state, um, there are these companies, a, a wedding cake company, a photographer that doesn't want to be involved. So, I mean, are you saying it's okay for these private companies to not participate in this? Or, I mean, that's, that's sort of like, you know, our country club's allowed to say, I don't want to admit minorities, I don't want to admit religion, you know, Jewish people. I mean, how, what, what are you sort of, you know, let's follow this to its logical conclusion. Um, well, I mean, well, I would say, you know, it is the libertarian ideal to get the government out of marriage completely, but in the context we're in now, the government has to provide equal protection to the law. And if it's giving certain types of couples benefits or recognizing certain types of couples, then it can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. I would also point to the Hayek quote, uh, a different Hayek quote, but it's essentially that conservatives often have a strong uh, moral fiber, but they lack the principles to live with others that have different types of moral fiber. And that's what I would say. In this society, um, I don't think it really violates the rights of anyone else for two people who happen to be homosexual, who love each other, to get married. If I'm a heterosexual, I don't think that that violates my rights. And so I think that under the law, with the government's policy, it would be worse. Nothing's perfect. I mean, Thomas Sowell once said that the easiest thing to prove is that something human is imperfect, but we should always ask compared to what. And right now, I think with these policies, it would be worse to not allow homosexual couples to have the same benefits, the same position in society, just based purely off of their sexual orientation. So I do believe that the ideal is to get government out of marriage, but if we're gonna keep it in, then it has to extend this to all couples equally. All right, uh, let's take a question for Team Conservative now. Uh, back at the corner. Thank you, Mark Priester. Great job, guys. Uh, I really appreciate the debate. I'm a personal debater myself on the American Parliamentary Debate Association. So my question today is that we all love free markets, right? But sometimes things like oligopolies happen. And when oligopolies happen through unvirtuous means, like say, like credit default swaps or bad derivative tradings on markets, they kind of crash economies. And things like Dodd-Frank try to fix those. Two questions, two-pronged. How do you feel about Dodd-Frank and its enforcement mechanisms? And as well as given that things like banks are oligopolies, four banks control 39% of the market share, should we break them up to increase competition and so that the, the invisible hand and Adam Smith can be happy in heaven? If you think that the Dodd-Frank protections 
keep us safe from the sort of market crash that just happened. You're living in a dream world. Um, oligopolies don't happen in free markets. Oligopolies happen under crony capitalism, the kind of thing that we've seen that gave rise to the financial crisis. As to the big banks, God help me, but should have just let them fail. That's how you get competition, not through government bailout, not through increased, the continued practice of the same things that led us to where we are now. It's through genuine capitalism, something that I think this country hasn't seen in a while. Could we also respond to that question? Um, Cato's also asked a response, so we'll, we'll let them do that. Well, I would say we do agree uh, with the conservatives on that, and we don't like Dodd-Frank. Um, but more generally, I'd just like to point to when sort of monopolies arise uh, in free markets, usually a better way of dealing with that monopoly is the free market. I mean, generally, if the government steps in to stop that monopoly, it creates a regulatory agency, and then technological change or just free market growth over time will lead to the breakup of that monopoly, but that government, that government agency is going to stay around and it's going to start regulating a lot of other things. Um, a good example of that is the railroads. I mean, we thought that we were going to have a monopoly on railroads. We create a lot of government agencies. And then things like, you know, the highway system and cars and airplanes were invented, and they, did, they broke up that monopoly. But we still have all those regulatory agencies today that continue to do harm in our economy. So I think, you know, I just wanted to add that as, in, in as a caveat to, uh, we agree with the conservatives, but that's a caveat in that generally free markets have a better way of dealing with monopolies. All right. Um, let's take another question from online. Okay. Uh, this is a question for the, con uh, for the conservatives. Uh, what about couples who don't want to have children? Uh, what do we make of their types of marriages? We're not invalidating the marriages of couples who don't want to have children. I think this is speaking of just a general societal norm. Um, I mean, I think that within marriages, there's single parents, there are couples who don't have children. We're not saying that that's not legitimate by any means, that their marriages aren't legitimate. But I just think that in general, we're talking in a very, um, I guess, societal-wide sense that the norms that the government should establish should support that kind of marriage because ultimately um, it is for the sake of children. If you don't want to have children, I think that's an individual decision, but we're not, we're not, we're not saying that everyone needs to have children. Returning to the idea of sort of all government laws promote virtue, it comes down to one question, what do we want to incentivize? We get to incentivize one thing, pick it and go. All right. Hey y'all, uh, my name is Robert Sinners. I'm representing myself tonight. Uh, this is a question for the conservatives. Um, since we've been talking about the issue of marriage and morality, um, my question is just where does that morality um, come from on a physical level? Does it come from sound social policy or does it come from the economic freedom that creates the environment for having positive family values and strong families? So is it something you legislate and you get the result or is it something that you create the factors through the economic market? I, I don't think that there's necessarily a moral value that this is springing out of. I think it's just 
more of looking at what benefits society as a whole. Um, we cited the Brookings Institute study that shows the costs of the breakdown of marriage. We believe that it's just best when children have a mother and a father in the household, that they're likelier to have a better chance at succeeding in life and that that benefits society as a whole. Um, I think we're talking more about general society, society prospering, not so much um, this coming from a specific set of moral values. Move on to a question for Team Libertarian. Right here in front. Hello, um, my name is Cindy Orndoff, and I represent myself. I, I'm, I'm curious about when you were talking about your closing argument when you said that uh, allowing peaceful immigrants in through open borders. That, to me, peaceful implies that they're law-abiding. And also, in order to have peaceful immigrants, that means that you're doing some kind of screening. And in order to do some kind of screening, you have to have a funnel to, to determine who is peaceful and who is not. So how do you reconcile that with open borders? Our main issue with not having open borders is that we are going to have to spend billions and billions of dollars looking through people who are just trying to come to America to get a better life and be involved in our economy and be a part of our society. If we open our borders, we don't necessarily have to screen all of these people, but we will be able to see that peaceful people are coming to America because they want to be part of our society. I'm sorry, did you have another question you wanted to add on to that? Would you mind restating your question then? Maybe I misunderstood. Um, I think, is that all right? That's, that's a, I mean. You want a little bit more? Okay. Um, well, I think, I think the idea was to essentially drain the swamp of people who are trying to get into America. Basically right now the border is closed and so you have people who are trying to get in this country illegally, some of whom want to hurt us and some of whom just want to come here to work and live. And so by creating a more legal immigration system, people who just want to come here and work and live will come through these legal ways and people who are coming here only to drop bombs are still going to do so illegally. So it's easier to spot who wants to come here to hurt us. And furthermore, I think it's, it's hard to say who you know, is going to commit a crime before it happens or do some kind of screening. I mean, that would require doing things like putting a policeman in every home. We could stop all domestic violence, but we're not going to do that. We don't, we don't believe that that is a good infringement on liberty. Um, so in that way, I think that uh, open borders improves national security by draining the swamp of people who are trying to come in here, you know, not through the legal channels, but through, you know, the illegal channels. Does that answer your question? Sid Misra, Treasury Department, as conservative. You champion the values of realism and sustainability, but how do you defend that in the context of the drug war, which involves extortion, violence, and death? I mean, I've already said that I'm not here to defend the actions of past administrations, and I'm not really here to defend any specific law. If I was a high overlord of the drug war, believe me, you wouldn't be seeing it. That being said, I think, I don't, I mean, I don't believe in the massive imprisoning of nonviolent offenders. I don't believe in mandatory minimum sentencing for arbitrary drugs. 
I think that a lot of what's happened in the drug war is inconsistent with both libertarianism and conservatism. But I think that the widespread legalization of harmful drugs is inconsistent with common sense. I'd like to prod you on that then. How would you, what is a conservative policy on drugs? My conservative policy on drugs, as, as high overlord of all things conservative, is you s treat these people less like criminals and more like the diseased individuals they are. If you're an addict, you're not a criminal. You have a disease, you need help. If you are selling drugs to children in schools, I get the feeling there's a business you'd rather be running. And I get the feeling that if I made it easier for you to run a legal business where you're not constantly looking over your shoulder for whether or not you're gonna be shot or arrested, you'd probably take that route. Economic and, economic rehabilitation and drug addiction rehabilitation. Not imprisoned, not st stuffing our prisons with nonviolent offenders, not the farce of injustice that the drug war has bred. So a pro-growth drug policy. But where do we draw the line? What, what is a hard drug versus an okay drug? Pot okay? <laughs> <laughs> Pills, booze? Mm -hmm. I think I'm not gonna go into a drug line by line, drug by drug, yes, no. I'm 23, woman. <laughs> Am I allowed to respond or? Maybe. <laughs> um, all right, fair enough. All right, um, let's take another question from online. Okay, this is a question for the conservatives from Sean. And he says, uh, if the conservatives' goal is promoting virtue, why should we push towards a system where politicians, who are generally the least virtuous, are in charge of implementing that policy? Because we believe in a system of checks and balances. Because in a real limited government, the virtue of the politician is sort of irrelevant. They are, they are bound. They are kept in check by the chains of the Constitution from harming us. That's the way government's supposed to work. It's not the way government works when legislators assign all real regulatory duties to administrative agencies and regulatory agencies. Then unvirtuous politicians can literally get away with murder. But I think that if you return to the limited government the founders envisioned, the idea of a government that, that has a positive role in the virtue of its citizenry wouldn't seem so far-fetched. Call me an idealist. I'm calling you an idealist because, Deal. only because you're working in the Edmonds Center. Um, he, he's, he's in the legal department at, at Heritage. Um, and so, talk about checks and balances, you know, we believe three-tiered system, the judiciary should be checking, um, con, you know, legislative overreach. Um, yet at the same time, in congressional hearing or senatorial hearings for members of the judiciary, we hear over and over again, deference, 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 deference. And what hath deference wrought? Obamacare. Um, so that to me is, I don't know, have things been falling apart? It seems to me that there hasn't been an appropriate check. Um, a few years ago, Senator Specter said, um, the Supreme Court is eating our lunch. Um, IJ did a study, they ran those numbers. The Supreme Court has overturned 0.06% of laws. So less than 1% of laws have been overturned by the, by the federal judiciary, by the, by the Supreme Court. So to me, that's, I, I, don't, I feel like there's not a good check going on. So. Um, What's, what's your suggestion? I agree entirely that there's not a good check going on. I mean, 
I'm, I'm gonna get a bit legalistic here, I am from the Admise Center. Um, there's something called Chevron deference, where the courts have to defer to an administrative finding made by any regulatory agency for the most part. There's a bit of a test, but overwhelmingly Chevron deference is applied to government, to government programs. What this means is that in the hearings that you're talking about, often it'll be legislators pulling up the heads of regulatory agencies that they, that they sort of put in there for enacting and codifying the laws that they passed. And it's a way that they sort of circumvent their checks. We can't hold them accountable because when we try to, they have a hearing and they bring up the regulatory agency guy and they hold him accountable just because he's the poor schmo who had to end up writing the rule to really create the law that the legislators, the legislators said he should. All right. Um, I'll take a question from the back because I totally neglected you guys, sorry. Uh, you left your hand up the longest, so you win. Mike, Mike, microphone. My name is Joe Danaher. I'm a master's student in philosophy at Franciscan University. So uh, as such, uh, it very much intrigues me to uh, ask the libertarian side about your teleological view of man. Uh, is liberty that you seek the final end of man and himself? Or would you argue, such as uh, James Audison, a classical liberal philosopher uh, at Yeshiva, that... Uh, liberty is a, also a means towards things that are higher, such as virtue, uh, that, or is there no primacy of the end for what people choose? Is virtue no higher than pleasure? Is nothing higher than any other choice? Or is choice just the final end? <laughs> you, you want to address that? <laughs> As was mentioned in our arguments a couple of times, we obviously do believe in individual liberty, but we also believe that from this individual liberty, many people do come to a virtuous end, and we do believe that that is a good end for society. We just believe that the government shouldn't be involved in promoting any sort of state religion, promoting religion in any way, or promoting virtue in society. They should we should instead make sure that there is an opening in our society that allows people to discover and choose for themselves what they believe. From this, we find that people do often choose what is right, but we still have the government there to protect individuals from each other when such actions do not occur. All right, um, we're going to do two more questions. So I'm going to go to my Coke Summer Fellow, who is right here in the third row, because I get to pick favorites as I'm the moderator. <laughs> Thank you, this is a question for the conservatives. So um, you've argued that the government should be incentivizing virtuous behavior for the benefit of individuals in society. I know you rolled your eyes because you've been getting this a lot. Um, but if we view uh, virtues, we call them values, if we view values as existing in a marketplace of ideas, and if the values that you want to promote are actually better for people, such as the decision to use drugs or not, the decision to marry who you want, the decision to choose each religion, um, then why won't individuals and communities choose your values voluntarily if they are actually better? Um, do you doubt the ability of the marketplace to be working in this case? And if so, why do you doubt it here and not in other instances? I think one idea that we really want to emphasize is that every law 
advocates something. There are no morally neutral laws. So I think the thought that you can have laws in society that aren't advocating some sort of behavior or establishing some sort of norm, um, it just doesn't work. So when once you accept that a law is establishing some sort of norm, I think that's where we get the basis for our belief that you know if we're going to have laws and if they're going to advocate something, then they should establish norms for virtue. Yes, you know I think uh, we we believe that humans are capable of doing both good and bad, and that in the free market ideas, largely there should be small government people should be allowed to choose things for themselves. But when it comes to establishing norms for the majority of society, for looking at society as a whole, you know, we follow a speed limit, um, and the government isn't coercing us into following the speed limit most of the time. You know, we just know it in our heads, we know what the law is, and we follow it. I think that's what norms do, is they, you know, establish in our minds cues for behavior. So we're not saying the government needs to control us and all of the details in our lives, but I think when it really comes down to the question of laws establish some sort of norm, we believe that norm should advocate uh, that norm should establish a virtue and that that will be most beneficial for society. All right, um, we're going to do one last question. If it could be directed at both teams, we haven't hit a ton of different issues, so um, everyone's pointing at that guy back there. <laughs> so he gets to go. <laughs> Hope it's good. Hi, uh, my name's Jim McGlone from New Jersey. Uh, I was wondering, uh, <laughs> wondering on, on marriage. Uh, so basically, the conservatives are proposing an institution that they view as the least restrictive means, an institution which doesn't discriminate against anyone, which leaves anyone free, everyone free to live in love as they choose, gay or straight. Uh, and they see that as the least restrictive means of helping the children children mature into healthy, productive, competent citizens. And the libertarians uh, are proposing either no institution at all, leave that. Leave, leave it to the welfare state to let you know, try to help children out, Question. or yeah, I'm getting it. Um, you know, leave, leave it to the welfare state to help children mature, or uh, an institution that's not child-centered in any way, that's only about regulating adult romantic desires. So why is the libertarian question, uh, view of marriage the small government anti-statist view? I think we're a little bit mixed up on what conservatives and libertarians actually believe about marriage. I believe it was specifically stated multiple times in the conservative argument that they do not advocate for both gay and straight families. They are advocating solely for heterosexual marriages, so that premise is just completely untrue. Also, as a libertarian, we're not leaving children to institutions. Rather, we are saving some of these children from being in institutions like orphanages. When you have gay couples able to marry, they have to demonstrate a real desire to have children and to raise them correctly. They can't go through the same means as a heterosexual couple. They have to either go through adoption, in vitro fertilization, surrogacy. There is a lot more demonstrated desire to raise a child effectively and correctly in society. All right, uh, I'm going to change things up for a second. Um, we're going to do a lightning round. I'm going to say a topic, and you're going to give me like a five-word response. So defense spending. Make it smarter, not skinnier. OK. Cut it by intervening less. OK. Next, stem cell research. Haha, <laughs> 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 no one's prepared. <laughs> no smart response. <laughs> Good, bad, agnostic. Uh, agnostic. <laughs> Free market.
the government. No market for ovaries. <laughs> um, climate change. There are bigger issues we need to deal with. All right. It's real, but we should take a different strategy. Okay. Um, or, organ, organ shortages, organ, organ selling. Um, make it a free market. <laughs> oh, that's different on that. So just go to Mexico. <laughs> all right, good, good, good job, guys. Sorry, that was kind of mean of me. Um, all right, now we're gonna we're gonna wrap up. We're gonna do our concluding remarks. These are gonna be four minutes aside, and it's gonna go Cato first, and then Heritage, and then you're done, and you can go drink all you want. <laughs> Are we coming to the podium for this? You're first. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you can have the podium, I guess. I do like the podium. <laughs> I'd like to thank you all for coming out tonight and for watching online and for everybody who has helped us engage in this discussion. There is certainly a great deal of ideological overlap between libertarianism and conservatism. It is important that we continue to celebrate the ideas that we share, but it is equally important to continue to discuss our differences. In debating the areas in which we differ, we push each other to examine our own views more closely. As such, I would like to address two specific areas which I feel the conservative team could have done better this evening. First, they, it, they talked about the administrative state and said that they wanted the freedom for parents to have families and raise their children freely. However, at the same time, they said that they didn't want this administrative state have people writing about their lives or legislating about their lives. But the issue is that they want to create these policies themselves. They want to dictate the views and the virtues that are within society. They say that they're not going to pick and choose religion or virtues. However, there's no way for the government to incentivize or promote virtues equally and fairly throughout our society. Second, we saw them kind of go back and forth a little bit on our founding fathers. In the beginning, they mentioned that they do also take root in the Constitution. At times, they've invoked these foundational values to support their argument, but at other times they said, and this is a direct quote, the founders are in the past. We cannot allow for these kind of mix and match policies that only insert the Constitution when it benefits your argument. As libertarians, we believe that the Constitution should be applied equally throughout society. A libertarian perspective is rooted in and committed to the ideas of a li limited government and individual freedom. These ideas are the same principles which our country was founded upon. We may not have perfectly implemented them at the time, but our country has taken large strides toward making these foundational ideas a reality. Now, as it was then, we seek to allow room for freedom to prosper in our society. If you seek to conserve the ideas of individual liberty and a small, limited government, the libertarian philosophy most closely upholds these values. I'd like to invite you to continue this discussion and to continue thinking critically about the issues that we have presented this evening. Thank you all for coming.
We've spent tonight's debate addressing our differences, but I believe our similarities are greater than those in some really fundamental ways. Conservatives and libertarians both believe in the paring down of the wealth transfer state. We both believe in the vision of our founders for a limited government that returns rights to their proper station, hands of the people. We both believe in liberty, and we come here to debate today based primarily on that mutual belief and love. To that end, I'd like to thank Cato for hosting this debate and having us here tonight. And uh, now the gloves come off. The Constitution. In the preamble to our Constitution, we, the people of these United States, ordained and established that same Constitution to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. I would ask you all to think about both parts of that sentence. Apply it equally, if you will. First, the blessings of liberty. Liberty is a good, but not an absolute one. It must be tempered by prudence so as to secure the blessings of liberty without the curses of license. The fullest expression of liberty is anarchy, a society in which the individual rights of the weak are trampled on mercilessly by the strong. Only by principled commitment to liberty can we keep from being carried too far into either the brutish state of nature or the repressive regulatory state we see today. Second, to ourselves and our posterity. We're not alone here, ladies and gentlemen. There's a generation after us, a generation that will and should take its cues from our actions. When faced with questions of morality, liberty, and prosperity, we need to ask how our responses will leave this world for them. Libertarianism's failure here is bifurcated. It is both unconcerned with stable families producing a next generation and uninterested in educating it. I wish I could be a libertarian. I really do. The idea of a world with no rules or regulations, just unfettered individual liberty and choice, it's an exhilarating and intoxicating dream. But it is just that. A dream, a sober understanding of human nature, predicated on millennia of collected experience, serves as a dash of cold water followed by a cup of black coffee. Given the freedom to do anything, not everyone will do the right thing, or even the rationally self-interested thing. Libertarians ask me to look around this city and claim that the nation that built it is a necessary evil, and that is a claim I refuse to make. Libertarians ask me to look at those who have fallen on hard times through no fault of their own as unworthy of a helping hand to get back on their feet, and that is a claim I refuse to make. Libertarians tell me I must subject my nation to the wholesale legalization of drugs that this very minute are ravaging our communities, and submit my pocketbook to the legalizations of millions of undocumented aliens, further burdening our already weary tax structure. These are claims I categorically refuse to make. There are claims I find incompatible with the Constitution and with our American way of life. Conservatism solves these problems elegantly and beautifully. It is committed to the blessings of liberty, as promised in our founding documents. Yet it creates a system of government that places just enough checks on human nature to keep the government running. Yes, those checks have been abused. Yes, the government currently has far too much power over the lives of individuals. But as Edmund Burke said of the French Revolution, your politicians do not understand their trade, and therefore they sell their tools. Our system of government works. It ensures individual liberty while providing for the common good. I refuse to sell it for a few years of fun license, followed by a plunge into dark anarchy. Government is not a necessary good or evil. It is simply necessary, an outgrowth of our human desire to relate to one another. That government is best which governs least and with prudence and liberty. For that reason, for all the ones previously stated, conservatism is the superior political philosophy. Thank you all for listening, and good night.
thank you guys all for coming. Uh, we've got refreshments and uh, drinks upstairs. Uh, if you make your way out of this auditorium to the left, up the spiral staircase. But before we do it, I just want to say a great thank you to all of you for being here, all of you guys out there watching online, all of you guys watching upstairs and downstairs. Thanks for making this a wonderful event. One more thanks for the panelists and Nikki Neely for moderating. <laughs>